What would you do if you found $45,000 in your attic? I mean, think about it. My wife and I were talking about it. The first thing that came to her mind was school loans, and we start thinking about all these things that uh, we could pay off. But uh, Josh Farron actually had to answer that question for himself. Back in 2011, the Associated Press uh, told Josh's story. And uh, Josh and his family had just closed on their first home. And one day he's kind of milling around his new garage and he looks up and he sees a piece of cloth stuck to an attic door. And he moves closer to investigate and he uh, takes the the hatchway door down and he climbs up and he gets into the attic and this is what he finds. Eight metal boxes full of tightly rolled wads of cash. And Josh brings the eight metal boxes down from the attic, and he gets his wife and his kids, and uh, they start counting, just covering their kitchen table with stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. And uh, in total, they count up $45,000. So now Josh is standing there. He's looking at all of this cash on his table, and he is confronted with that question. What am I going to do with this newfound treasure? And that is the question. That is the question that Jesus takes on in our text for today. How do we think about? What do we do with? How do we manage earthly treasure? Turn with me to Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Luke 12, 13 and following, where we learn that earthly treasures are not for covetousness, but for richness toward God. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, "Uh, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead there. Uh, Verse 16, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now Jesus has just been giving this weighty discourse about serious things. We're moving through Luke's gospel. We're just preaching our way right through it. We've just been in chapter 12 where Jesus is giving this really serious talk. He's, told, he's been talking with his disciples about uh, not fearing people but fearing God, yet not fearing God's ability to care for them. He's been uh, reminding them of the importance of acknowledging him in this world that is hostile to the gospel. And then here is this man in verse 13 chiming in, not because he cares what Jesus has been saying, but because he's uh, overly concerned with, about this, with this inheritance. 
And right then, it becomes crystal clear to us as readers that there's all this potential for earthly treasures to distract us from total commitment to Christ. But the man's request is simple. He says this, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, though this person is in the opposite position of, jo- of Josh Farron, who uh, rather than uh, finding a treasure that didn't belong to him, this man is longing after a treasure that he didn't possess, Jesus is still concerned with the same question. What will you do with the riches of this world? And Jesus' response to the man's request tells us exactly how to view earthly treasure. First, Jesus rebukes the man for making the request, which lets us know that seeking out and lusting after earthly treasure is not okay. Verse 14, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge and arbiter over you? On a first glance, it doesn't seem like a rebuke, but when you look closer at the words, Jesus in addressing the man, him as man is rebuking him. He's not being casual there. It's not as though when I run into a buddy on the street and I say, hey man, how's it going? It's not that sort of address. He's being exclamatory and emphatic. He's rebuking him. And when Jesus questions being judge or arbiter, he's not saying he doesn't have that kind of authority. We certainly know that he does. This is Jesus' way of saying, I'm seriously not going to let you pull me into this uh, trivial dispute right now. Essentially, Jesus is just flying right past the man's request. He's not concerned about who's getting what. He's more concerned with a fundamental, more profound uh, issue, which is the man's greedy heart. Jesus cuts through all the pretense and he addresses the man's greed. And this is what Jesus has to say about the man's greed. Guard against covetousness. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Jesus is now directing the response, not just to the man, but to the group. And by covetousness, Jesus means greed. He's talking about a lust for more. He's talking about a a love of possessions and this longing after these worldly things that would fulfill our, 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 our earthly, fleshly desires. And to be on guard is to be actively aware of that threat and to be, to be actively watchful and protective. To be on guard means setting up walls in your life and around your heart, guarding yourself from greed. So let me ask, is your approach to uh, earthly treasures to guard your heart against greed? That's how Jesus is instructing you. Are, are you mindful that all of us in our sin, we lust for those things that we don't have and we long to just hold on to the things that we do with this tight-fisted, uh, stingy, me-first mentality? And that's all of us, whether you have a lot or whether you have a little. Uh, these covetous longings are just cunningly at work in us, seeking to twist us and distort us into these greedy people. And Jesus wants to know, are you actively guarding your heart against greed? The condition of your heart, according to Scripture, is so precious. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Are you guarding your heart vigilantly against the monster of greed? 
Well, Jesus tells us why we are to guard against greed. He says that greed focuses on material things, but life is more than earthly treasures. Look at verse 15 again. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Greed warps your perspective so badly that you really start to believe that your life consists of the summation of all these things that you're gathering and collecting. This house, that house, that TV, this car, uh, those uh, shoes, whatever it could be, those investments. And soon enough, your time on earth is reduced to just compiling assets. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with owning things. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being a wise manager of the things that God has given you. Actually, as we're going to see later on, that's good. That's a godly thing to do. But when you're driven and compelled and motivated and taken over by greed in the way you view those earthly things, Jesus says you have a problem. According to Jesus, when we make earthly treasures our goal and our priority and our dream is to waste our lives. When you can have complete confidence this morning that your time on earth is made up of so much more than anything that this world could ever offer you. The very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. According to Scripture, you can know that you were created in the image of God. You were made in His likeness to be a vice regent here in this place, formed to know Him and to dwell in relationship with Him. And greed and covetousness is nothing but a perversion of original sin that puts us at enmity with God, that makes us enemies of God, that draws us far away from God. But our God is a God of redemption. Our God is a God who restores us and liberates us from uh, the, the slavery of sins like, like greed and, and, and all the things that greed en- encapsulates. And He restores us through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you can know that your life is made up more, of more than a, a garage full of things or a ledger full of numbers. Your life is for the glory of God and for your enjoyment of Him. And by way of not mixing up your whole purpose for existing, Jesus warns you to guard your heart against greed. But Jesus continues. He gives us another reason to be guarding against covetousness. Because covetousness is foolish and life is fleeting. That's what Jesus says. Jesus launches into this big parable in verses 16 uh, to 19, which brings the truth of greed and covetousness just to a burning focus. Uh, In the parable, a rich man has been blessed by the Lord. His land has produced this plentiful crop. And uh, he has rich person problems, doesn't he? He has so much, he doesn't know what to do with it. But rather than be generous with it, Rather than uh, help somebody with it, rather than give it to the mission of God, this man's solution is to build bigger barns, to store it up so that he can relax and eat and drink and be merry and, and put life on autopilot as it were. 
Because he's got so much, uh, uh, so much stuff amassed, so much security in what he's gathered that he no longer needs to do much. He can just coast in life. The man's life is all about his own ease and his own comfort. Just look at the pronouns that are used in verses 17 to 19 that describe how this man views the earthly treasure. My crops, my barns, my grain, and my goods. Verse 19, he's talking to his own soul and he says, And I will tell my soul, soul, you have ample goods. This man does not see himself as a steward of the things God has given him. He views his earthly treasures as his, belonging to him for his benefit, for him to be used to bring about his own luxurious living. So the parable is ultimately about greedy stewardship. And listen to how God, Jesus, responds. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus does not mince words, does he? He lets us know there is this tragic danger to storing up treasures for ourselves rather than being rich toward God. Within the parable itself, God calls the man a fool which is this highly nuanced word, which means he is rejecting God's law and his will, and he will not submit to God's rule. And then comes this tragic end. This man has spent all this time and energy and effort gathering and storing and preparing and hiding away. For what? Just like that, the man is gone. The Lord takes him. Uh, This past May, my wife and I went down to Newport, Rhode Island uh, for a day trip. And I know many of you have been there. We, we just had a great day. And uh, part of what we did in Newport was we uh, walked along the cliff walk. And if you're not familiar with Newport, there is this beautiful walk on these cliffs right on the ocean. And the ocean's on this side, and then on this side are all of these unbelievable mansions. <clears throat> these mansions are genuinely impressive. They are these over-the-top homes built by these incredibly wealthy people who had huge fortunes. And uh, we're walking around and I'm looking at these grandiose places and, and, it, and it hits me. Just thinking, wow, these are really impressive homes, but where are the people who built them? Where are the original owners who built these gigantic homes many times just for a few people to live in? Where are they? They're all gone. Today, the mansions are good for showing around to tourists. Um, There are these amazing seaside homes that are just reminders that these people worked hard amassing all of these impressive earthly things, and now they're gone and they're not here to enjoy them. So what good is all of their wealth? If that's how things play out, are these the things that are really treasures? Looking at these beautiful mansions, I, I was just reminded of the truth of James chapter 4 verse 14 which says for you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes and this is the same tragic end of Jesus's parable isn't it what happens to these great big barns that this man has has built for all of his stuff who will enjoy all of this security it's not him we don't know. We know that this man now stands before Lord, the Lord having to give an account. He will not be celebrated for making a lot of money. 
He will give an account for what he did, whether he received or rejected Christ, and then how he stewarded the things God gave him. And with that in mind, Jesus emphasizes the value of being rich toward God. Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now he states it negatively, but even just a cursory reading of the, of the verse, we understand that Jesus is communicating. It's better to be rich toward God than to store up treasures for yourself. But what does it mean to be rich toward God? Well, being rich towards God in part means following the example of Jesus Christ. So let's look at what Christ did with His riches and we'll follow His example. We'll do what Christ did. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with all of His riches, left His heavenly home and He became poor. He took on flesh. So that those of us who are truly poor, dead in our sins, complete degenerates in every way, could be made rich through His poverty. So with all of His riches, Jesus was sacrificial. And Jesus was loving. Being rich towards God then means living out the great commandment in Matthew 22. Loving God, loving other people with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Following Jesus' example in the way that we do it. Being rich towards God means taking the resources and the energy and the time and everything that the Lord's giving you and and using it to, to proclaim the Gospel and to make the glory of God known and to be a light in this dark place and to help people and to lead them to the cross of Jesus Christ. So don't spend your time, your energy, and your effort compiling things of the world. Don't continue to build bigger barns for yourself, but use those things that God has given you for the sake of Christ and others. Moreover, according to Jesus, the same fate that befell the man in the parable, that tragic ending, will come upon you if you are seeking treasure for yourself rather than being rich toward God. Those are the words of Christ. So Jesus has told us that earthly treasures are not for covetousness. They are for richness toward God. And now we find that it's better to seek Christ's kingdom than have anxiety over all the little earthly details. Look at verse 22. And He said to His disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now this section begins with this negative uh, exhortation. Don't be anxious about your life. And uh, Jesus is now speaking to disciples within that crowd, right? So he starts off with the man. He's speaking to the crowd. Now he's speaking to disciples uh, within the crowd. And he's talking about anxiety. And uh, you guys know we've spent almost a year now in Luke's Gospel Just in chapter 12, Jesus has been talking about anxiety quite a bit, hasn't he? Fear and anxiety. He wants us to get it. He wants us to understand how to think about life in a way that does not cause us fear or anxiety. Just back to chapter chapter 12, verse 4 and 7. He says, don't fear people who can harm your body. Fear the Lord. Verse 11, he's telling you, don't worry about what you will say when you stand in front of your persecutors. I will care for you. And even now, Jesus is telling them, 
don't have anxiety even over the basic human needs, things like, like, like your body and what you will wear and what you will eat. Why? Why is Jesus constantly bringing us back to this teaching? Telling us not to fear, not to be anxious, not to worry. Well, it's because He knows us. And He understands that all of us, we worry about these things that God has in control, don't we? We look at our needs, and the first instinct oftentimes is to worry about how those needs are going to be met. But Jesus wants us to understand that He is really, truly trustworthy. And He is able to meet all of those needs and more. So we can, we can give Him our witness and our words and our well-being and even our basic needs like food and shelter and clothes to wear. But Jesus, in all of His goodness, doesn't stop by just saying, go be anxious. He then shares with us some truth from God to us that's going to free us from anxiety. He says you don't need to worry because your life is more than all these things. Verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Does that sound familiar? Didn't Jesus just say that? Your life is more than big barns full of grain. Your life is far more than all the possessions you could ever gather up. And now he's saying your life is even more than the very basic things that you need to survive. Your life is not bound to this world. Jesus also teaches that you don't need to worry because you are beloved by God and God cares for you. Look at verses 24 to 30. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. The logic here is so simple, but it is so unbelievably profound. If God cares for the birds and the lilies and the grass, and if you are far more valuable and precious and beloved to Him than they are, if God cares for you and He loves you and He knows your needs, every one of them, and He's able to care for you, what is there to worry about? Worrying doesn't help anything. You can't add a single hour to your life through worrying. In fact, worrying just displays a lack of faith. So why worry when God will care for you? And it's such a simple, simple truth. But I'm guessing, even in a room this side, there are people sitting here this morning, you need to hear this. Because we are a people that worry. It's not easy for us just to hear the instruction, don't worry, and magically we're not worrying. We need to take it in this morning. It's a simple truth, but we need to hear it. Some of you are just in a whirlwind of stuff. 
there are circumstances swirling around you that are, are, are heavy. And they're sitting on you. And you're trying to work through it and survive it. Some of you are battling sin. Deep-seated heart sin issues. Some of you are really discouraged. Some of you are having relational conflicts. There's all sorts of things that this group is bringing into this world that we don't need to worry about, that we do worry about. And there are four words from God to you that have all the power in the world to lift that burden, to ease it, to take the weight, to give your heart and your mind rest, to give you peace and confidence moving forward. God cares for you. God cares for you. How often do we forget that? The Almighty God of the universe, He loves you. And He cares for you. Just sit with it for a minute. Let it stir around in your mind. Let that truth just sink deep into your soul that the Almighty God, He values you. And He cares for you. Because when by God's grace, you get that simple reality that God loves and He cares for you, you are just drawn away from greed and anxiety and fear. And you are set free to live out verse 31. Instead, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. These verses give us our main priority, don't they? Seek the kingdom of God. God's got the rest of it covered. Seek the kingdom of God. Oftentimes we complicate it. We want to seek all this. Nope. Seek the kingdom of God. Jesus is very clear. He tells us the one thing we are to seek. We are to seek His kingdom. So the Luke 12.31 person is no longer enslaved to worry. No longer enslaved to stress out about how am I going to get through this day? What am I going to eat today? What am I going to wear? How am I going to... Uh, figure this out or afford that or how am I going to manage this? You don't need to worry about it. This person is liberated to seek the kingdom of God. You are unshackled to employ all your energy and your efforts and your talents and your gifts and your finances and your resources for the glory of Jesus Christ in this dark, dark world. You are free to submit to God's authority in all phases of your life. You are free to pursue knowing God more and let that be the passion of your life and the mark of your time here on earth. And you are emancipated by knowing that God will care for the rest. God is not saying, seek my kingdom and that fancy car, that big house, that elaborate wardrobe, all this stuff that you want, I'm going to give it to you. That's not what God is saying. But Jesus is making a commitment that God will care for your basic needs. All you need to worry about is His kingdom. Jesus also promises that if you seek His kingdom, God is pleased to give it to you. Can you believe that? Isn't that amazing? If you seek His kingdom, God is pleased to give it to you. Look at verses 32 to 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." We've seen Jesus be direct and bold and borderline harsh with people in the first 12 chapters of Luke's Gospel, haven't we? 
But here he's just so tender. He calls his disciples his little flock. He promises them, the Father's going to meet you right where you're at. Relationship with him, status as adopted sons and daughters, just so loved by God. This amazing relationship with Jesus Christ and an eternity of citizenship in his kingdom is yours. God is overjoyed to give you these things. And the same is true for you that through Christ, the Father is pleased to give you these kingdom promises and these kingdom blessings. So when we seek the kingdom, you and I can actually be good, God-honoring stewards of the things God has given us. But we have to make a choice what we're going to do, right? Because in reality, each and every one of us is going to walk out of these doors today And we've got decisions to make about the things that God has put in our care. Philosopher Ivan Illich says this, Man must choose whether to be rich in things or in the freedom to use them. That's pretty profound, don't you think? Man must choose whether to be rich in things or in the freedom to use them. So make your decision. Are you going to be rich in things? Are you going to be the rich in the freedom of using these things for the glory of God? What is your choice? So we don't have to be afraid. We can actually live out these verses. We don't have to be afraid to give things away, to sell things, to give it to the poor, to uh, uh, value heavenly treasures above earthly treasures, knowing that every sacrifice we ever make will produce riches for the kingdom of God. Anything we ever give up for the sake of gospel proclamation and the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ in this place will be worth it and those treasures will never, never fail. No thief, no rust, no moth could ever touch them. They're unfailing and eternal. But we also know that as we're making these, treasure, or making these sacrifices, we have a God who promises to care for us. So we really are set free to seek the kingdom, not earthly treasure. We're able to be rich toward God and to pursue His kingdom rather than act out of greed and anxiety as Jesus Christ becomes our true treasure. The very last piece of of that passage, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's this proverbial saying, right? What you treasure, that's where your heart is. That reflects uh, the condition of your heart. Uh, So if you're prioritizing possessions, um, oftentimes that means you're going to be exerting all of your resources and your energy towards accumulating things. If you're prioritizing yourself, you're going to be overcome with greed and racked with anxiety as you, as, as you work for things that are not going to last. But if you treasure Jesus, your heart, your mind, and your soul will be moved towards generosity with God and towards seeking His kingdom truly. So think through the implications of Jesus' words for your life. Who or what is your treasure? A good indicator. What are you spending your money on? What are you thinking about? How does your time look? What are you, what are you using your energy for? Is it Jesus or is it you or is it something else? If your answer is no to the question, are you treasuring Jesus? Understand, He really is the, the precious jewel that we all ought to covet. 
He is the beautiful prize that we all ought to adore because He is the one that hung on the cross for us. And He is the one who raised from the grave three days later and lives as our great priest at the right hand of God even now and even for needy, broken down people like you and, for, and, and like me. Jesus is the one who cleanses us and redeems us and justifies us. And forgives us for greeds like, uh, sins like greed and anxiety. He's the one who gives us a regenerated heart so that we're actually able to show richness toward God and to seek out His kingdom. But He not, not only saved us, He's here helping us now live for Him. So we treasure Christ. And uh, our whole time on earth, including the way you think about and manage Uh, your resources, your earthly treasure, becomes completely transformed. We begin to live like Jesus is our treasure. Well, when it comes to our perspective on earthly treasures, Jesus has been pretty clear. Um, It's not for covetousness. It's for richness towards God. It's not for uh, being anxious over all the little details. It's about seeking His kingdom And all of that's only possible when Jesus Christ is your treasure. And the text continues, and we're told that our time on earth ought to reflect this awareness that Jesus is our treasure. And if we are living uh, out that awareness that Jesus is our treasure, then we're waiting in readiness for his return. Prior, Jesus had been talking about um, managing our uh, our resources and all of that uh, in this life. Here he's calling us to do it with, a, with, with eyes looking ahead at the future, at Christ's return. Turn with me to 12.35 and following. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So here's a little piece of what it looks like when you're trusting God, when you are treasuring Jesus. When your life is appropriately Christ-centered, you live with this awareness that Jesus is coming back for you. And your life displays this readiness for His return. Verse 35 has these two images of readiness. The first one is staying dressed for action. And uh, to be dressed for action uh, means to gird up your loins in the original. So, what that meant was this. In, the, in that time, they all wore long garments. And uh, to gird up your loins meant you'd pull them up and you'd tie them around your loins so that you are ready to go. At a moment's notice, you're ready to move. You're ready to go. The second image is this. Keep your lamps burning. It's this picture of being ready to go at any time. Even in the dark. Even in the night. Even, even when other people naturally, normally are not ready. You're ready. You're always ready. Your lamp is always burning. It's never not burning. You're ready. You're ready to go. And these images ought to describe the way we await our Savior coming for us. We have expectancy. We, we trust He's coming. We're waiting. He's, he's our great hope. 
Though we don't know when he'll come, right? Could be before this sermon ends. Some of you are saying, I hope so. Could be this week. Could be 10 years from now. We have no idea, but we wait for him. And letting this watchful waiting for Christ informs everything that we think and what, that we do. So when I'm doing this action or thinking this thought or spending my money on this or that, I'm thinking, what would Christ say? Would He be ashamed? Would I be ashamed? Is, is what I'm doing and spending and thinking, does that reflect a, a, an understanding that Christ is coming and does it reflect a readiness for that day? So we wait on Him, and we are those that the Master finds awake. We don't fall asleep on Him. We pour our time and our energy, our talents, our hearts, and our minds into the things and the causes of God. Not into our own or the things of this world. Because Jesus is our treasure. When our lives are Christ-centered, we not only wait in readiness, but we also manage the things that Jesus has given us. We manage them well. Verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Peter asked Jesus point blank. Jesus is telling a lot of parables in in chapter 12. And he just says, who's this one for, Jesus? Jesus. And uh, Jesus doesn't give a real direct, clear answer. As we read through, it becomes pretty clear that uh, the parables for anyone connected to Jesus. And one of the big takeaways of the parable is the importance of wisely stewarding the things that God has given you. And that first uh, requires that you have a a perspective on your money and your things. uh, That is this, that you are a steward of that which God has given you. That you're not like the man in the first parable. That it's not your stuff. It's God's stuff that he's allowing you to steward on his behalf. So now that we've got that uh, perspective in place, he makes all of this argument uh, promoting the wise stewardship of the things that God has given you. And Jesus says the good steward is the one who's responsible and faithful with these things. That person's going to be blessed. To the contrary, the bad steward is the one who's unfaithful and irresponsible. Who's not living with uh, this perspective that the masters could be home at any moment. Verses 45 to 48 describe the judgment that's going to come on three different types of unfaithful people. And the end result of all of them is that they are judged. Then finally, the parable closes with this principle. 
which states the more knowledge, the more giftings, the more resources God has given you, the more responsible you are to Him to steward them well. The point is, the only steward that's blessed by God is the one who is awaiting Christ and who is managing the resources of God well. So you and I walk away from Jesus' words here and we have some heavy-duty reflection to do, don't you? Don't we? Because what Jesus is communicating to us is so practical. I'm sure any one of us, our minds could be racing in a million different directions of how to manage the things God has given us for His glory more. So you walk away from this text and you have to reflect on what Jesus is saying. And we have to do some heavy-duty reflection thinking through whether or not our lives are marked by this eager expectation of Christ's return, but whether or not we are managing the resources of God well. And in this chapter, Jesus completely dismantles the idea that the world's offerings are ultimately valuable. They are not. Jesus is. So honestly answer, are you spending your time on earth compiling things, storing up earthly treasures for yourself, Or are you using your uh, resources and your time and your effort and your giftings and your talents and all, all the things that God has given you for the sake of loving, serving, and awaiting Jesus? Are you living like Jesus is your treasure? So Josh Farron was standing there around his kitchen table and he, surrounded by just stacks of cash and uh, in the article he actually mentions, yeah, you know, my mind immediately went to all the car repairs that needed to be made and all the home improvement projects that I wanted to uh, take up and all the things that we would like but our family can't afford. And uh, him and his wife had been wanting to adopt a child, but they couldn't afford it. And he said, my mind is racing with all of these things to spend the money on. But then he says this, we knew we had to give it back. The money wasn't ours to keep, and I don't believe you get a chance very often to do something radically honest, to do something ridiculously awesome for someone else. And that's exactly what Josh Farron did. He tracked down the family of the uh, previous owner and he just gave them $45,000 in cash. Uh, You see, Farron, um, as he was looking at all of that money, um, did not was not overtaken with greed and he was not consumed with anxiety how he was going to pay for all the little things. He had this understanding. I don't know if he's a man of faith, but at the very least, his story reveals to us that he had this understanding that his life was made of more than earthly treasures. Likewise, Jesus calls us to the same awareness. To recognize that our time on this earth are not for all this earthly stuff at all. But Jesus also calls us to take a step further and to recognize that all of our true riches are in Him. And the way we live here is informed by who He is as our great treasure. So live like Jesus is your treasure. Live like Jesus is your treasure. Please pray with me. Uh, God, we love You so much and We thank You for Your Word. How powerful it is to speak into all areas of our lives. And God, we want to submit. And we want to 
live this out. So we pray that you please would come and help us. And for many here, God, they're, they're not in relationship with you. And the very first step is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. To repent of sin and to turn to you and to receive the gift of a new heart. A heart that's clean and, and justified and forgiven and able to walk with you. And for the rest of us, God, I just pray that you would give us this passion for you and this passion to live out your word that we might bring you glory and lift high the name of Jesus. We pray these things. Amen.